Hi, this is Brian Standing, host of the Monday 8 o'clock Buzz. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Hope you subscribe to our podcast. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating at wortfm.org. Last week, the National Security Council and the White House confirmed rumors that Russia is working on an orbital nuclear weapon designed to incapacitate satellite communications. Such a move would destabilize outer space and would likely represent a breach of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty banning weapons of mass destruction in space. Andrew Kidd is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who specializes in armed conflict proliferation and weapons of mass destruction his book trust and mistrust in international relations won the 2006 conflict processes best book award andrew kidd joins us now by phone welcome to the eight o'clock buzz uh thanks for having me on the show Thanks for joining us. So uh, what do we know about um, the this idea of putting a nuclear weapon to destabilize satellites? Is this something new that uh, that hasn't been talked about before? Uh, well, it's a combination of things that have been talked about before and even um, uh, tested and operationalized in space. Uh, but it's taking it a bit further than, than it has before. So for a long time, of course, the United States and Russia formerly the Soviet Union, have had nuclear weapons capable of targeting each other and uh, destroying American cities, destroying Russian cities. The Chinese have that as well. Other countries do too. Um, so those those nuclear weapons capabilities are still there. Um, they have Russia has about 1,500 nuclear warheads they could target the United States with. So just put it in context, um, we're still living under a nuclear threat that um, is a sort of hangover from the Cold War days. Um, this is a capability for anti-satellite warfare, uh, at least that's what it's being described as. And anti-satellite warfare, shooting down the other guy's satellites, that's been something that the United States and the Russians have been exploring for decades as well. Um, we have the capability to do that, the Russians do, the Chinese do. Uh, but typically that's been uh, using missiles launched from the ground to uh, target individual satellites and take them out, and we've all tested that capability. Uh, This is putting some sort of nuclear-powered device in space to power some kind of anti-satellite capability, Uh, and that uh, takes you a a bit further. Uh, Typically, there are nuclear-powered satellites out there. Uh, A lot of countries have had nuclear-powered satellites, uh, but not satellites with nuclear weapons aboard. In fact, nuclear weapons aboard in space has been prohibited by an international treaty. Uh, So if it is an actual detonatable nuclear device, then that would both be new and and violate this treaty uh, and possibly give it some additional capabilities that current anti-satellite warfare techniques uh, lack. The uh, speculation that's been um, in CNN and other uh, CNN who's reporting on this and some other uh, journalistic outlets is that this would de- is designed to create an EMP or an electromagnetic pulse. What is that, and how would that affect satellite communications? Sure, that's an, another concept that's been around for a while uh, since the eighties. Since we started having lot, large numbers of satellites in space. Uh, the idea of an electromagnetic pulse, that's a, uh, you can use a nuclear weapon to generate this uh, electromagnetic pulse, a sort of series of uh, high-energy electromagnetic waves, 
that could conceivably knock out electronic equipment, not just in space, but on the ground as well, over a wide radius. And so it's viewed as a kind of, uh, hasn't been tested, thankfully, but it's viewed as a potential way of incapacitating uh, adversary electronic communications um, for your benefit in, in wartime. Um, now, uh, what's sort of new here is that the United States is becoming increasingly, has become increasingly dependent on electronic communications uh, from GPS satellites that tell people and missiles where they are and where the targets are uh, to all kinds of communications and computer uh, equipment designed for uh, precision-guided munitions and the like. And so the way we fight now is just extremely dependent upon all of these electronic uh, systems you know, working, working optimally. Uh, we've seen that in the Ukrainian war as well. The Ukrainians uh, and the Russians, to some extent, depend on systems for locating targets uh, that rely on satellites, uh, the Starlink satellite for the Ukrainians. So modern warfare has become increasingly dependent on these satellites, and so that becomes an increasingly attractive point to attack, uh, especially in the case of the Russians versus the United States, where the United States is sort of asymmetrically dependent on these these technologies, and so uh, for the Russians to kind of even the tables or even the, the playing field, attacking those capabilities would be advantageous. So uh, Russia would be betting that they would be able to wage war uh, without satellites better than, say, the United States or Ukraine could. Is that the calculation? Yeah, well, it's more like the, the United States and the West is so heavily dependent on this. Like A lot of the advantages that we have are dependent upon these technologies. And so if you take that away you get us sort of back down to the level that the Russians are fighting at with, with less less precision, less less of this sort of high tech wizardry. It, it seems uh, like so, a yeah. it seems like something like an electromagnetic pulse would be pretty indiscriminate and would take out Russian satellites as well. It certainly would, yes. Um, so that's right. It would be indiscriminate. But again, sort of the American advantage in that means that taking out the American capabilities and the Russian capabilities would probably still on net be advantageous to the Russians. Um, so I think that's maybe the motivation behind it and why people are so, uh, concerned about it, uh, in Washington. So what, what happens now? I mean, if this is, if this does end up being a violation of the 1967 space treaty, what, what recourse is there for the, the rest of the world? Uh, well, there's the usual recourse that has always been when countries develop capabilities that you don't like, which is that you develop counter capabilities and see how they like living in a world in which both sides have uh, acquired these technologies and capabilities. And then if they don't like that, then perhaps you could uh, negotiate your way back down to some sort of uh, ban on, on such capabilities. The ban on space weapons was kind of forward-looking back then because people had experimented with these things but didn't really want to go into that and spend a lot of money on that. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, you could really contaminate low Earth orbit uh, with uh, debris from satellites if, if there was an actual serious shooting war out there where each side was going after each other's satellites in a large-scale way. And that would render it uh, useless for you know centuries, if not millennia, to come. So that's, there's a real sort of cost there. Um, and there's also a, a cost to putting nuclear weapons in space, uh, even beyond that, uh, sort of uh, environmental risks, what if the thing uh, malfunctions, what if it comes down. Uh, and if you have each side with nuclear weapons poised in space, 
they could be very uh, a very short reaction time. Uh, something people worried about during the Cold War was nuclear missiles uh, reduce the reaction time to think about what's going on and to decide whether you're really under attack or not uh, to the range of 50 minutes uh, or so for the intercontinental ballistic missiles. If you put them in space, they're orbiting over the other side's country, you might have much less than that even to, to think about these things. So uh, that's one of the reasons why people didn't go with the notion of having nuclear weapons in space. And for another reason is that you put them in space, everybody knows where they are, you can track them, they're quite vulnerable. And so it increases the incentives for preemptive strikes. Whereas if you have your nuclear weapons safely tucked away in uh, concrete protected silos uh, on in the ground or on mobile platforms like missiles or railroad tracks or something, they're much safer from enemy attack, and that's stabilizing. So talk about the status of nuclear proliferation in uh, in the world now. Um, you know, we're in a, in a post-Cold War environment, uh, allegedly, but um, we've seen Russia withdrawing from a number of arms control treaties in recent years. The U.S. as well uh, has, uh, you know, under the Trump administration in particular, uh, has talked about uh, not honoring some of those treaties. Are we are we moving backwards in the nuclear proliferation arena? Uh, we're definitely moving backwards in terms of arms control agreements between the United States and Russia. Uh, almost all of them have now been uh, abrogated or uh, left behind. Uh, there's one remaining that still has some constraining ability on each side, but it's not clear that that's going to be renewed, and I would say betting is that it won't be. So in that regard, yes, we are in a sort of new era, really unprecedented since the 60s, where both the United States and Russia have very little interest in nuclear arms control uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, nuclear proliferation is a slightly different story in that there are still only nine nuclear powers in the world. And a lot of people back in the 50s, 60s, 70s thought there were going to be uh, you know, dozens um, because of the attractiveness of nuclear weapons. But the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, really put a cap on that, and a lot of countries which could develop nuclear weapons haven't done so. Uh, you've always had problem cases that have done so outside of the regime, like North Korea, uh, Indian Pakistan, uh, Israel, so covertly. Um, and now you face uh, the most likely new proliferator is, is going to be Iran. Uh, so you've always had cases in ones and twos who were slowly winding their way towards the nuclear weapons capability. But you haven't seen anything like the kind of mad rush towards nuclear weapons that people people once feared. So what's what's different about the arms control and the abandonment of arms control on the part of Russia and the United States? Uh, wh why why is that happening at this time? Why are, are we getting to a point where we're contemplating the the use of nuclear weapons where that was unthinkable um, in generations past? Uh, I don't think we're any closer to using nuclear weapons against each other, a U.S. attack on Russia or a Russian attack on the United States. I think in the context of the Ukraine war, if Russia were actually losing and getting pushed out of Ukraine, Putin might well return to making nuclear threats. Uh, but I think towards Ukraine, I don't think he would actually use nuclear weapons against NATO countries, much less the United States, for fear of retaliation. Um, but in general, I think Putin... Well, well 
is it's a general phenomenon when relations get bad, arms control tends to suffer. It either stagnates or goes in reverse. And I think we've seen it go in reverse. So as U.S.-Russian relations have deteriorated, really over the past 20 years, uh, arms control has sort of suffered as a consequence. Uh, when countries don't trust each other uh, and feel strong animosity towards each other, they tend not to be interested in arms control uh, with each other. And plus, you've had on the American side, actually both the previous Republican foreign policy perspective, the neocons, were not very pro-arms control at all. And one of the first things that George W. Bush did when he came into office in 2001 was to uh, take the United States out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty because he wanted to deploy uh, an ABM system against the Russians. And then with the Trump administration, they're sort of allergic to all international agreements, uh, whether it's about arms or trade or anything else. And so they were very much against, uh, in particular, the Iran nuclear deal that was negotiated by the Obama administration, uh, but certainly had no interest in arms control negotiations with the Russians. And so on the Republican side, I think, you know, both then and now, you've got a a sentiment that's definitely anti-arms control. And on the Russian side, they were initially uh, more pro-arms control, but I think under Putin nowadays, anyway, they have uh, uh, decided that that's that's an arms control avenue for them. Do you see uh, any daylight in in that thawing of those relations, or are we heading down this nuclear uh, this nuclear arms race spiral again? Uh, I don't see any potential for thawing. I think the nuclear de- um, deployments are going to depend on a whole bunch of factors. Um, it would be, I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that this is actually happening, that this isn't just some sort of Russian bluffing or, uh, you know, vaporware of some sort bragging about technology that doesn't actually exist yet. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know. Um, but again, to get involved in that kind of arms race, a high-tech space-based arms race for the Russians against the United States, that's not a level playing field. Uh, the United States is going to be able to, I think, respond in kind if they want to, uh, and asymmetrically also if they want to. Uh, again, like you put nuclear weapons in space, you're just putting a big, fat, juicy target out there, and it's going to be the simplest thing in the world for the United States to track those those satellites and develop capabilities to take them out, uh, you know, very quickly if need be. Uh, so I don't see that being in the long run a winning move uh, for Russia either. All right, we've been speaking with political scientist Andrew Kidd. Thank you so much for joining us on the eight o'clock buzz. My pleasure. Thanks.